Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Freedom of Species is a radio program dedicated to raising awareness about issues concerning animals. It's broadcast from the 3CR studios in Melbourne, Australia, and streamed live from the 3CR website. Podcasts are available from the 3CR Freedom of Species websites and from iTunes. Welcome to Freedom of Species. I'm Kate Gracie, and I've been talking on the phone with Sydney filmmaker Mark Halliday about his first feature film, Vestige, that's just been released. Now, Vestige is a documentary that follows some of the last remaining rhinos protected in South Africa's Kruger National Park, and it shows the people who risk their lives on a daily basis protecting this collapsing species. Now, Mark, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you going? Yeah, good. Now, listen, your film, Vestige, has got a really interesting tagline. The tagline says, this is not about them, it is about us as humans. What does that mean? Um, the tagline was, it came out of, uh, from one of the characters, Nunu Jobe, uh, and we were just, we were on, we were out in the bush, and we were, we'd been tracking a rhino all day, and then just out of the blue, we, we were just chatting, and then that line came out of his mouth, and it just really struck a chord with me, um, and, you know, it, it sort of, it flipped the whole movie idea on its head, where that first trip, where we met him, we, we were just going over there to investigate and find out what we could, and then. It, it sort of set in motion the themes and the, and the vibe that we wanted to go for the film in terms of taking it back from the sort of militarisation that that world is, is sort of cover, uh, sort of coded in and just take a more philosophical approach. Um, and when I heard that line come out of, of his mouth, I just knew that that's kind of what the film had to be about and sort of use the film as a platform to just use the, to just almost use the rhino crisis as a platform for discussing sort of other issues that we've created as human beings because... We've made some questionable decisions in the past and we can't continue to do that. So moving forward, it was nice to, to kind of champion that line and just, you know, make us all sort of be very wary of, of and conscious of our decisions moving forward in terms of improving the world and making it, leaving it a better place than when we found it. Now, you're a Sydney sider and I understand you're, you're somewhat fixated with the ocean. How did you end up making a film about the plight of rhinos in Africa? Yeah, I, yeah, I definitely. I grew up in uh, Bronny Beach, and I'd been surfing my entire life. And I basically transitioned from surfing into surf photography, and was and was trying to chase that as a career path. And then, when you know the the social media started to take over and kill the print media world, I, I started to look for another another line of work to go down. And uh, my mum actually found this really amazing course at the Australian Film School that looked really catered towards me, and. Uh, you know, I supplied and then started falling in love with documentaries there and uh, sort of before I knew it, um, sort of midway through my second year of, of the three-year degree, I just thought, 
I found out about what was going on. I just thought, you know, this is sort of a time-sensitive issue and we, we may as well just start now and we'll, we'll figure it out as we go along. What were your first it, steps to actually make, make a, a movie about the rhinoceros? Were you in contact with the Australian Rhino Project? No, no. So um, my parents were actually, they were actually volunteering for that project uh, by chance. Uh, they... Dad came home one day and told me what he was doing, and Mum was doing the same thing, and uh, they opened my eyes to what was happening, and then I sat them down one night in front of the TV, and I, I, I sort of gave us some thought for like a week, and I just watched Barunga, um, this incredible documentary that was super inspiring, and I sat my parents down and said, look, I want to try and, you know, this film's fired me up to get over there and help you guys out, because obviously I can't help out in the admin capacity at this, at this company, so... You know, how can I help out? I just looked, went back to drawing board, looked at my, my sort of tool belt and realised that I should probably try and make a doco. And um, Ray Dealov, who was the creator of the project, he was very kind to give me his time and I sat down with him and we just got talking about the issue and uh, he said, look, there's a lot more going on over there to them than just what we're doing. So I, I recommend that, you know, go over there and figure out for yourself what's going on because I think you'll find a different world and a different story. So... He was amazingly helpful in when I when I, when I started to tell him the story that we wanted to tell. Uh, he just opened all the doors for me over there and put me in touch with John Hume, who's the, the uh, controversial figure with, over there who has the idea to farm the rhino horn, and that's all in the film. And uh, from there, we just sort of drove around South Africa, me and my cinematographer, and we sort of just found some interesting subjects to talk to. And uh, after the first trip, I mean... We crowdfunded our first trip, which was amazing. We, after I realised I wanted to do it, we had a month window before I was on uni break in July, and I just thought, you know, we've got to aim for July here. We've kind of, that's the, that's the pocket we've got to go. We've got to go quickly. And we raised, we did a little crowdfunding campaign. We raised enough money to get myself and my cinematographer over there. And then once we came back from that trip, we didn't know if we had enough to make a short, a feature, or a, a pilot or whatever. And when we sort of went through the, the footage and the rushes uh, and we realised sort of this common through, this common thread uh, uh, between a few characters and I knew that we needed sort of one more kind of character group and, and sort of one more uh, just just something to just provide a little bit more diversity into the complexities of the, the rhino world and then we went back in the, the summer uni break and then that's when, after that in 2017 we just beginning, we started cutting the film. So I understand that Ray Dearlove of the Australian Rhino Project, he was proposing to to relocate rhinoceros from from South Africa to Australia to to protect the to protect the species. Did yeah. you cover that in your film? We we looked to do it. Um, it got a bit uh, complex within. Just I mean, this is this is a bit boring here, but it just got a bit complex with contracts and, and people buying stories. Uh, I think 60 minutes pipped us to the post there, but um, you know they they had some serious trouble with with our government, which is a pain. Uh, it's really frustrating that you know our government's just so strict. I mean, look at Barnaby Joyce when a couple of dogs come into the country. I mean, try bringing 80 rhinos, um, you're going to have to jump over some hurdles. So um, they've been putting up blockade after blockade and really just not cooperating with this idea. And it just it's really um, I don't know, it's just really disappointing. Like this guy comes up with this really amazing idea to, to try to create this insurance population out in western New South Wales and then, you know, the government just makes 
the company jumped through ring after ring, and they're a company that they don't have much time. You know that they're running off sort of donations as well, and when you kind of, and then at the same time, like Ryan is still being killed. So uh, yeah, it's super disappointing that uh, the government didn't really come to play there. But you know, I mean, I'm not too sure. I haven't had recent updates, but the last I heard, he says there was going to be like a, a an external third party that they'd have to go to, and before they got here, but. You know, hopefully we can kind of get that ball rolling quicker, sooner rather than later, because there's definitely not a long, lot of time left. What support did you get in South Africa when you were making this film? I mean, is everybody bar the poachers on board with rhino conservation? Uh, in terms of support, in terms of people welcoming us in to talk about it? Yeah, welcoming you and helping you out and facil- just facilitating what, what you wanted to do and what the stuff you wanted to get. It's super interesting. Some some people are, are incredibly welcoming and open their doors, and then others, you know, they've seen the the BBCs, the Nat Geo, CNNs, and, and they've seen them cover over and cover it a hundred times, and they know that these big film crews are on big money, and you know these guys aren't getting paid a lot of money to do what they do. So you get a lot of people that can be kind of hostile and, and don't really want to have anything to do with you. Um, so we we definitely had some doors shut in our faces, but that's totally understandable. I mean where there was just two sort of film students that went over there uh, to see what we could find. But I think at the same time that that sort of played into our favour where I know we had John who was incredibly welcoming and gave us a really heartfelt interview where a lot of the, the sort of big press interviews you see with him, he, he gets kind of attacked by the, in, in, like the, the hosts or the interviewers. And uh, Michelle, who is, is his right-hand uh, hand, Right hand, hand. Oh my god. Uh, she, she. After the interview, said like that's the most calm she's ever seen him because we literally just provided a platform for him to explain his his situation and what he planned on doing with the rhinos. But um, you know, you, you kind of what I've learned to take from this experience is that you know you're going to get rejected when you try and approach people. Um, not everyone's happy to have a camera sort of poking around, uh, especially when there's controversial organisations running. But um, it, it was still awesome. We were so grateful that, you know, the people that did open their, their jaws did because we've come away with some really incredible characters and without them we wouldn't have the story we have today. Now, the, the documentary considers the argument for the legal trade of rhino horn. Now, do you find yourself torn on the issue of legal horn trade or, or have you always had one firm position on that? I think, I think when I went over, um, I think I was against it. Um, and we tried to sort of. Uh, it was interesting. I think I went over and I was I was against it. But after I, I spent time with Michelle a week before the interview, and I literally just stayed at her property on the farm. And I don't think anyone has had access like that before, where I got to talk to her. I got to understand why she's doing what she's doing, the sacrifices that she's made as a human to to do what she does. I mean, in the last five years, she's had eight days off. Um, like, and I think she had eight days off because she got like Congo fever or something. She was bleeding out of everywhere, and she was on her deathbed. Like that's just how dedicated she is, and, and to kind of see that dedication to one man and, he, and his idea, I, I knew there just had to be something behind it. So once I sat down with John and had him explain the situation to me and explain that you know the end goal is to actually give these poaching communities private parks where they're actually looking after the rhinos themselves and they're harvesting the horns themselves which are going to regrow and, you know, it's kind of empowering these local communities through the sustainable utilisation of wildlife. Uh, you know, I was 
I was kind of sold there and then I, but you know, there's a lot of people that aren't. Um, so we tried to make it as simple as possible in the film for people to understand because, you know, at the same time, people after seeing the film don't agree with it, which is totally cool because, you know, everyone's entitled to their own opinion. But I think personally, we're running out of time uh, and it's something that, you know, could be a short term solution where, you know, education will be the, the sort of vaccine for the disease, but we need to treat the symptoms down. I, I think that uh, the trade in rhino horn is something that could do that. There's a lot of rhino conservation projects over there, as I understand. Are they are they all worthy of support? Yeah, it's a tricky one. Um, I, I used to be a big firm believer, you know, I just, in terms of wildlife conservation and sort of donating to these companies, but after I got over there and especially speaking to John and Michelle about it, um, I mean, I'm not going to sort of quote them on it, but, you know, and, and other people as well, I, I, there are some people over there taking advantage of, of the of the situation, which is super disheartening. Um, you know, you've got organisations who are, um, I mean, look at it, we've, I think I saw a stat the other day that said we, there's 350 registered rhino NGOs just in South Africa. If we've got 350 registered rhino NGOs collecting hundreds of millions of dollars, we should be able to make a difference and we should be able to stop what's going on. And the fact that we aren't just sort of is enough to say, you know, there's something fishy going on. And I can't really go into details about it, but, yeah, there are certain companies that are being not as generous with their time or money as they could be. So how do we know which ones to support and which ones to avoid? What, what can uh, we do to work them out from here? That's the hardest thing. I, I just, just, like huge amounts of research like for, for when people if you're going to go and donate um don't just sort of go onto the glossy website after seeing an ad or something and i mean when you go onto these websites that, these ngos that are and i mean don't get me wrong a lot of them are doing amazing work that just you, you'll more than likely be hit through this donut donate now shiny button in front of your face before you even get into the website um so I, look at look at sort of where their money's going and sort of who their supporters are who their sponsors are and then just go and explore them and, and just do a little bit, just take maybe five minutes to do a little bit deeper research and then that way you'll, you'll, you'll be confident and you'll understand that that, that company that you want to donate to is to is doing great work and uh, and you can be confident that uh, your money's going to a, a, a sort of a, a viable solution that's going to be implemented. Like, uh, it's just this stat, what was it? Um, there was between five of these really top guns, these, these top recognisable logos, I think they collected like something in excess of uh, $150 million and I think less than 1% went to sub-Saharan Africa. Wow. Um, yeah, there's just huge, like, and these, these are sort of, uh, I don't want to be misquoted on that, but um, just astronomical figures where, like, no money is actually them being coming out the other side to these really struggling communities where you've got people like um, Michelle, who's this incredibly experienced rhino veterinarian, earning no money, um, basically just dedicating her time. And, I mean, that's not even her. The anti-poaching guys are doing the same thing. Um, you know, everyone's over there earning little no money. But um, you just got to wonder where all these hundreds of millions of dollars are going. Yeah, for sure. I mean, do the, do the poachers know that they're driving the species to extinction? I mean, and, and do you have sympathy for these poachers who are probably largely um, impoverished villagers? Yeah, for sure. Um, we covered a poacher within our film who um, 
you know, I was quite nervous going into this into the interview. I didn't know how hostile he'd be. I didn't know if he'd be, you know, open, welcome to the questions we were asking. And that that interview ran for a little while. And I, by the end of it, I, I definitely felt a little bit more compassion for him than I, I thought I would. Um, you know, he, he was sort of desensitised to the whole thing, where, and he was kind of disappointed that it's gotten to the point it has because, you know, he was an older man who's, who's providing for his family, uh, whereas, you know, uh, one of the anti-poaching guys talks about how the newer crop who are doing it, they're just doing it to, to party and whatnot. They're, they're not doing it for sort of uh, a, a survival as a survival message. Um, there are different um, motives at play, but I definitely have a little bit of compa- understanding for it and compassion just because, you know, if you've got seven kids and no job and no money and you've got to provide, I mean, who knows what we do as humans. So, you know, he 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 like he even said, he's like, it, it'd be a terrible feeling if the rhino goes extinct. Like he even said that, but he's like, look, there's nothing I can do. That This is the situation I've been pushed to. Um, there's no jobs for us. There's no employment. Like, well, I mean, uh, what else am I supposed to do to provide for my family? So after that interview and that interaction, I definitely felt a little bit more compassion for him than I was expecting. Did you consider taking your your yourself and your cinematographer to Asia to document the the use of the rhino horn there? Yeah, we we definitely considered it. Um, there was a, there was multiple reasons why that didn't happen. Um, one of them <laughs> one of them just being time and money, which is which is always a bummer. But um, you know, we we definitely considered it. Uh, at the end of the day, we. We, want, we wanted to champion the people in Africa. We wanted to find some really great characters that, you know, could represent uh, represent the, the good fight, in a way. Um, and we kind of wanted to keep out the whole Asia thing because I think that was just going to breed hatred. There was no positivity that could come out of that, you know. There's no reason why they're doing what they're doing. So I think if, if we had that within the film, it would have just bred... Um, sort of hatred and you would have had your classic villain and I just wanted to steer away from that and stick to a more positive, hopeful story where we know what they're doing, we know that it's wrong and, and you, there's no way you could be able to sympathise with it. There's no way of understanding what they're doing. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, it's, it was definitely considered but we, we just decided against it. So it suggests to me that the demand there in Asia, the demand for rhino horn isn't starting to wane and that's why... That's one of the reasons you wanted to keep you wanted to keep an optimistic film, and the demand is still great in Asia. I the think. demand is still massive. Um, the, I, I can't see the demand going anywhere anytime soon. Um, you know, recently, I mean, when I say recently, a, a few years ago, there was a, a famous politician in Vietnam that claimed that it cured his cancer. You know, so when you've got these figureheads claiming that uh, this this so-called medicinal uh, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, um, can treat cancer when, I mean, all it is is fingernails and hair, you know, it's, and everyone laughs that stuff up over there. So uh, we, we just wanted to stay away from it. You know, the demands are going anywhere. What we need to do is we need to treat, uh, we need to see what we can do sort of at, at sort of ground level uh, in terms of education, uh, anti-poaching and uh, trade. So, I mean, anti-poaching is going to, it's stopping the immediate symptoms like those guys on the ground. Without them, you know, we'd pretty much be wiped out. Um, and then, you know, trade can almost provide this temporary solution where obviously this holistic approach of education is going to be the be-all and end-all, but how do we educate uh, these kids over there? And we kind of explored that at the end of the film, which was really exciting. But I just think 
you know, there are some amazing organisations in Asia doing doing some great things over there to, to kind of combat uh, the the demand, which is which is super encouraging. At the same time, you know, there are like, companies trying to target uh, sort of the the wealthy districts and the schools over there and, and the kids to say, look, don't go down this path of having like of, of using this material because what it's going to do is going to drive this animal to extinction that has sort of no connection to your country, but it's going to be causing a lot of heartache and pain for others around the world. Does your involvement with the Rhino Conservation Campaign finish now with the cinematic release of Vestige? Oh, no, no, this will be going on until that I die. Um, I think it's something that once I started, I just couldn't let it go, uh, and especially going over there and seeing it firsthand. Um, yeah, once I got over there, it was a completely different ball game. Like I thought, I was like, oh, we'll do what we can to help out. But once I got there and saw these people and their dedication and what they sacrificed, I was like, all right, I'm going to do what I can. You know, we'll be holding screenings of the film. We'll be use word of mouth. Um, it'll be nice to do a follow-up film down the line. Um, when that'll be, we're not sure. Um, you know, maybe we'll just do a strictly uh, demand-driven film where we cover just the demand. Um, but yeah, this will be happening. This will be a big part of my life, I can see, for the next, until until I die, for sure. No, that's great. Now, what do you think the prospects are for the rhino, in your in your most honest opinion? Um, you know, I, having been over there, I think it's encouraging. Um, you know, I'm, I'm still following everyone. I'm still talking to all, all our characters over there on a, on a regular basis. And they're posting about the positive news and the positive work they're doing. Um, you know, numbers have... Re- a recent report showed that numbers of poachings have dropped. Uh, numbers of uh, uh, poachers have been arrested has increased. Number of traffickers have been, uh, being arrested has increased. Um, you know, I think the amount of attention that is being given, these politicians can't just sort of uh, turn a blind eye to it anymore and hand down soft... Um, soft punishments to, to sort of the figurehead. So uh, I think recently in Tanzania we saw one of the massive, one of the biggest traffickers from uh, China. She, I think she just received like a 15-year sentence, which I think was like a record or something up until this day. So, and she'll be spending that within a Tanzanian prison. So uh, it's nice to see that the prosecutions have got a bit of teeth now and hopefully in the future, um, you know, they continue to, to up the ante of the prosecutions and, and sort of, you know, I, I think... With the spotlight that's shining on it, you can't really be be sort of soft on this issue. You know, everyone wants to see um, harder sentences handed down. They want to see more novelty solutions coming about, whether it's, you know, rider horn trade or whatnot. Um, But I'm hopeful. Uh, Don't get me wrong. It it sort of... It can be a bit grim when you look at the figures, but we are starting to put a dent on it uh, and we are starting to slow the whole... The, the killing of, of the rhino down, so it's it's sort of encouraging, but at the same time we are still against the clock and the numbers are still massive. Let's say every single Australian sees your film Vestige. How would that mm. help the rhino? You know, I think, I think it resonates differently with everyone. Um, some people might be empowered to go and study, you know, some degree within conservation that could then end them up over there uh, working within uh, this, like I mean, or sorry, education and they could end up working within Nourish which is this beautiful, beautiful uh, organisation that we cover at the end of the film, you know 
you know, people could go and, and do some research themselves and kind of find out, and, you know, NGOs they could they want to donate to um, after seeing the film. And even if that, they can visit the website and find out how we can point them in the direction of um, of sort of helping out in special ways. You know, we can put you in touch with Nunu and sort of go for bushwalks with him. Um, you know, and, and I think one of the best parts about it as well is that because it takes that more philosophical approach, it allows for the messages of the film to apply to more issues worldwide. So it could just fire up whoever's watching it to help out, you know, the help improve the world in sort of another sector and whatever that is, you know, they could go out, you know, tackle the, the overfishing that we're dealing with or, you know, population growth. But um, I think, that's where it's, it's sort of that, that sort of wider, deeper message that comes out of the film that I think will hopefully resonate people to do whatever they can in their own way. Hopefully everybody can go and see it. And where can we go online to stay updated of announcements of upcoming screenings? Yeah, yeah. so we'll be posting upcoming screenings on our website. Like We try to keep that re- regularly updated. Um, and also, I mean, it's screening at Transitions, which is awesome. Uh, we're so grateful that they picked it up and given it a voice. Uh, we had our world premiere in London. I mean, that was an incredible opportunity to take the film to an international audience for our world premiere. Um, that was one of the biggest career highlights, you'd have to say, for sure, up until this point. Um, but what we'll be trying to do is, is run sort of actively engaging screenings over the next few years. Um, but... What we're actually doing at the moment is we're condensing it down to a broadcast link. So what we're going to aim to do is, we've, with our, in partnership with our distribution company, we'll be looking to get it to uh, online streaming services uh, as well as TV stations. So, I mean, we can't name exactly where it's going to land up at the moment because it's still uh, in the paperwork, but uh, we will be looking to hopefully have a public release within the next few months that will be free of access to everyone and everyone can watch because um, I think everyone can get everyone individually can kind of get something out of it. So what's the name of your website, so where we can find those announcements? So you can find the announcements at uh, vestigemovie.com um, and then there's not too many uh, sort of screening announcements at the moment because we're still just trying to organise them, but uh, hopefully down the line it, it we'll be updating that regularly and um, as well as on our Facebook page we post when we've got screening so if you were to just visit the uh, Vestige movie Facebook page you can stay updated that way as well. That sounds fantastic. Thank you Mark. Thank you for joining us on the on the phone um, for this chat. Really good. I hope your movie goes gangbusters. I hope it's, I hope everybody goes to see it because it sounds wonderful. Fingers crossed. That'd be lovely. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Freedom of Species on 3CR 855 AM and we've been talking with Mark Halliday, a Sydney filmmaker who's just released his first feature film, Vestige. And that's a film that follows some of the last remaining rhinos on Earth and the people that are trying to protect them. So that's it for the show today. You can all follow us on Facebook and on Twitter. You can also email us at info at freedomofspecies.org. Our guest Mark has suggested some music to take us out with, so we'll see you next week. And let's start with mm, let's start with some Edwin Starr. Yeah. 
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.